Zelensky preparing to join the WEF in Davos as more wartime propaganda hits the internet. 50 years on from limits to growth, we're going to take a look back at that Club of Rome document and what's happening today. And also exercise is white supremacy, apparently. The madness never ends in this day and age. So all of that to come in the best broadcast this side of the Pacific. That's right, that's another brilliant, informative, hilarious episode of the Arriving Somewhere with Matt J podcast. Commentary, comedy and conversation. Let's get into it. But before we get into it, (laughs) remember to like if you haven't liked yet, or shared it or commented or subscribed on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. What are you doing? This is You should pause, subscribe right now. And if you feel the need, you really enjoy this podcast, go to the Arriving Somewhere Substack and subscribe on there when where we can communicate more personally. Okay, into the, into the show. So the news over the last couple of days, we have um, Mr. Mr. Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. He's preparing to join the WEF in, WEF that is, in Davos. Davos? Davos. Tomato, tomato. Potato, potato. President also holds more talks with asset manager BlackRock over post-war reconstruction funding. So this is an article from Bloomberg. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Very short fellow too. It's very interesting I find the height of certain people. I actually saw photos of, who's the guy from Barstool? Dave Portnoy, I think his name is. I think Primetime Stein, whatever uh, his uh, handle is on Instagram posted some photos with Dave Portnoy and he's on tippy toes in his shoes. Anyway, just find it very interesting a lot of these people that you wouldn't know how short they were until you you see them with other people or in real life. Not that I've seen any any of these people in real life, but Zelensky, very short man. Putin, very short man. But they're always portrayed in a very manly, big, powerful way. Anyway, I've digressed. Um, So President Volodymyr Volodymyr Zelensky said his government is preparing to participate in the World Economic Forum in January and that he spoke again with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink about the post-war rebuilding effort. Maybe he should think about that a bit more before he goes ahead. That's just a fantastic, obvious pun that I made there. Quote, specialists of this company are already helping Ukraine to structure the fund for the reconstruction of our state. Zelensky said, who had a video call with Fink in September, said in his evening address to the nation. He didn't say whether he would attend the January 16th to 20th WEF event in person or participate virtually. Uh, Apparently Zelensky has also spoken to Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni and raised the prospect of Italy contributing to the strengthening of Ukraine's air defences. But I thought the media was going on about Italy now being run by fascists. I don't know what's going on, it's all a mess. Uh, Russian forces continued offensive operations around yada 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 yada. And then they go into the war effort. And the head of the German Lower House of Parliament's Intelligence Oversight Committee said the recent unmasking of an alleged Russian spy at the country's foreign intelligence service suggests authorities have only been half switched on to the threat of infiltration by the Kremlin in recent years. Quote, what everyone needs to take on board is that there are still intense intelligence activities going on, like during the Cold War. Bing, 
bing, bing, bing. There it is. That's really what's been ramped up over the last year is trying to compare it to the Cold War and the Soviets and to get everyone rolled up for all of this. But as all of this is going on, hilariously, this is from the um, red-headed libertarian, which I think she's part of Timcast, isn't she? I think so. Anyway, the red-headed libertarian on Twitter pasted, pasted, posted the latest war propaganda. And I believe this has now been deleted. But a journalist posted this. It's a photo of a young kid, young, maybe six years old, he's eight years old. But he looks about six. Um, dirt all over his face, hair everywhere, crying, you know, a few cuts, his shirt's ripped, and it said, um, the saddest part, there are no children in Ukraine anymore, only little humans with very grown-up eyes, old even, somewhat tired of a life yet unlived. Pictured Mark, eight years old, just survived a Russian artillery attack. Then, you go to the next slide. Readers added context. They thought people might want to know. This is the new thing going on on Twitter, and it's it's, uh, it's very, uh, very interesting. This image predates the conflict in Ukraine and appears on a novel published in 2013. Just madness. And uh, supposedly this whole thing has now been deleted by the journalist that posted it. But that this isn't new, and the people that use images of children and stories of children like this are usually dictators, tyrants, nefarious organisations, politicians, media, those trying to spin a narrative. And it's not uncommon, and we know this. But the book that this child's image appears on is apparently called El Hombre in El Olvido. Not sure how to pronounce that, but El Hombre in El Olvido. It's a Spanish book. But the comment under the thread is interesting. Um, Someone said... Someone played out a fake conversation, which is pretty spot on. It says, do we have any dead or mangled kids we can show the world? No. How about really sad kids? No, they're all safe. Shit. Can we find something? Anything? Probably. And that's, that seems to be what we get. It's just propaganda after propaganda. And then you've got an image, again, that was posted in February with these two kids, one holding, it looks like a stuffed rabbit or something, a, a girl and a boy. And the boy with a little, little gun on his back saluting the tanks with an with a Ukrainian flag going by. That same image was used in 2016. So this is all common tactics. It's just the internet now. I don't know why people are getting so lazy about it. Um, I guess it still works on the masses, particularly those watching mainstream media and taking it as gospel. Um, another one here is that a CNN journalist. He just keeps on dying. <laughs> CNN from Afghanistan, a journalist, Bernie Gores, executed in Kabul by Taliban soldiers. We are working with US officials to get several more journalists out of Afghanistan at this time. Our thoughts are with Bernie's family. And it's a picture of a bald man with glasses, um, smiling, I guess, on his front porch. And then the same picture used on the exactly the same guy, exactly the same picture, CNN Ukraine. We're sad to announce that the first American casualty of the Ukraine crisis has taken place. Thoughts and prayers with the family of activist Bernie Gores, who passed away this morning after a, a mine planted by Russian-backed separatists exploded. And then there's also a, um, a video from Lebanon in 2020, 2020 in Beirut, and a video from the Ukraine that look 
identical, just showing explosions and what happened. And all I've done is just change the names and changed the the information that you see on the screen. But the videos are identical. So it's all just an absolute absolute mess. What what can you believe? Especially coming out of mainstream media and other big organizations and our politicians. We are just being constantly fed lies. And um a lot of people do believe this. But there you go, so more of the uh, the war propaganda coming out and what appears to be a bunch of BS coming out while Zelensky prepares for Davos in January and has been in talks with BlackRock to help reconstruct the country. Deary, deary me. Anyway, this year, limits to growth, turned 50. Did you know that? I had no idea. I missed it. It happened in around March sometime in 2022 now if you don't know what the uh, limits to growth is it was a paper out of the club of rome in 19 i think it's 1970 1972 yeah 1972 so the club of rome is a non-profit informal organization of intellectuals and business leaders whose goal is a critical discussion of pressing global issues the club of rome was founded in 1968 at Academia di Linzi in Rome, Italy. It consists of 100 full members selected from current and former heads of state and government, United Nations administrators, high-level politicians and government officials, diplomats, scientists, economists, and business leaders from around the globe. Yes, it's just another one of these types of elitist groups. Uh, it stimulated considerable public attention in 1972 with the first report to the Club of Rome, The Limits to Growth. Uh, since July 2008, the organisation has been based in Winterthur, Switzerland. And the reason it's called the Club of Rome is because the first meeting took place there. So I think it's good to get a an idea of what these groups are because you often you watch documentaries and videos and things on these types of groups and where they've come from or you'll listen to podcasts or whatever but they never actually tell you well i've i've found anyway that they they don't often go into who they are where they started from they kind of just assume that you know um, now i've heard a lot of these names of these groups but i i don't know their backstories or who they are and who started them so whenever i discuss them i try and give a little bit of a a background so Limits to growth turned 50 in 2022. This comes out of Stanford. It was also been reported in New Zealand Greenpeace or Greenpeace Aotearoa. But I'll go through the Stanford article. So from March the 4th, 2022, the limits to growth at 50 from scenarios to unfolding reality. And this is published for, uh, by the Post Carbon Institute. Post Carbon we're carbon-based life forms. That post-carbon, that's a terrible name for an institute, unless you're thinking we're going to merge with technology, you know, the whole transhumanist thing. It's really, I can't believe they've actually called their organisation post-carbon. Anyway, so I'll just go through a little bit of this. A half century ago, the worlds of science, public policy and economics were rocked by a prominent book, The Limits to Growth, authored by four systems scientists they are out of MIT. Uh, Donella Meadows, Dennis Meadows, Jorgen Randers, and Williams Byrons III. 
the team produced computer-based scenarios showing that continued increase in population and industrial output would eventually prove to be unsustainable and that the only path to a stable future was one in which levels of both population and industrial output were deliberately constrained by government policies. So, they're Malthusians. If growth continued, the crunch would not come immediately. The team's standard run or business as usual scenario instead showed major disruptions disruptions to world systems commencing in the first half of the 21st century. The limits to growth sold 12 million copies, was translated into 37 languages and remains the top selling environmental book ever published. Absolute madness. Um, they say, however, prominent econo- uh, economists, including Robert Soloy, uh, uh, Milton Friedman and Julian Simon bristled at the idea that growth might have limits and issued rebuttals that, while failing to address the core arguments of the book, nevertheless were cited repeatedly over the following years as authoritative refutations. Now, apparently there is a book on that called The Limits to Growth Revisited about this debate. The New York Times book review dismissed The Limits to Growth as an empty and misleading work, garbage in, garbage out. Newsweek, a far more influential publication then than now, called it a piece of irresponsible nonsense. Policymakers were happy to be relieved of the of the obligation to grapple with the book and its implications and have essentially ignored it ever since. I have they ignored it ever since? Uh, well, certainly not ignoring it now. Certainly haven't haven't been ignoring it over the last decade. So now the Using a simulation program called World 3, MIT modelling study has generated a series of 12 scenarios that showed how resource depletion, population growth, industrial output per capita, pollution and food production per capita would influence each other under various policy conditions. So again, and we're just going to do the same thing. We think we are smarter now in 2022, 2023, and these computer models can predict where we are going. Apparently, it says while the standard run of so they they're kind of revisiting it, revisiting the idea and using a different while well, using their computer model, while the standard run scenario with no policy intervention showed the disturbing feature of peaks and declines in world population and industrial output in the early to mid twenty first century, the team had no desire to see such an outcome materialize. Indeed, all the other scenarios were based on efforts to achieve a different and more desirable outcome. Desirable outcome for who? It's the question. What if resources, including minerals and metals, were actually double the levels then estimated to exist? What if growth of population and or industrial output were limited by government policies? Um, In the best case, the economy would achieve a steady state, at least for the coming century, but that outcome would require substantial policy intervention. Ah yes, we know. Governments and our elites intervening in free markets has always been a spectacular success. So now we have the benefit of a half century of hindsight, but we also have the great misfortune of living in a world that closely approximates the standard run scenario of the study. And then they go through all the data and the curves of uh, this computer model and using limits to growth as well, it seems. So they're going through things like birth rates and um, energy consumption and all of that kind of thing that we're seeing play out in front of our eyes with groups like the WEF, the WEF and the United Nations and others. Now it's interesting because if you go over to Scientific American, 
Com. They actually have an article, Why Malthus is Still Wrong, and this was published in 2016. And just scrolling down the article, it says, the, the problem with Malthusians, Bailey writes, is that they cannot let go of the simple but clearly wrong idea that human beings are no different than a herd of deer when it comes to reproduction. Humans are thinking animals. We find solutions. The result is the opposite of what Malthus predicted. The wealthiest nations with the greatest food security have the lowest fertility rates, whereas the most food insecure countries have the highest fertility rates. The solution to overpopulation is not to force people to have fewer children. China's one-child policy showed the futility of that experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no crap. The futility, the horror of that experiment. Uh, it says it is to raise the poorest nations out of pov- poverty through democratic governance, free trade, access to birth control, and the education and economic empowerment of women. Hmm. Okay. There's some uh, interesting topics to to discuss in there and, and push back on there, I guess. But we're seeing this play out in real time, and the shutdown of our economies and what they're trying to trying to make us. Uh, we're trying to steer the world away from, i.e. being able to have your own transport, uh, being able to, to eat meat, things like that, as we've discussed. And now geoengineering and, on, and that kind of thing as well. Uh, just an absolutely crazy time to be alive, isn't it? But it gets crazier because apparently white supremacy and exercise, well, they're, they're one and the same, didn't you know? How didn't you know this? So over to time.com, the white supremacist origins of exercise and six other surprising facts about the history of US physical fitness. This is on under their history and books segment on their website. So it's by Olivia B. Waxman. How did US exercise trends go from reinforcing white supremacy to celebrating Richard Simmons? (laughs) are you starving for content are we all starving for content at this point is i mean well they just desperate to bring out more things to get people right up because if you believe this if you believe exercise is rooted in white supremacy you've got real problems i mean don't go out and try and get in shape just use this as an excuse to not it's, it's white supremacy if you actually want to be fit and healthy so this evolution from white supremacy to Richard Simmons, I'm not trying to mash the two up there, um, is explored in a new book by a historian of exercise. That's a interesting job to have, a historian of exercise. There can't be, I mean, there must be a limit to growth for that industry. You see what I did there? Always bring it back to your previous stories. Brilliant stuff. It's, so it's Natalia Malman Patrizella. I don't have no idea. Some of these names I'd have to read. She's a historian of exercise and her book Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, which is out in January 2023. So basically the gist of this article is that we went from, so Americans went from a mentality of fat is good because of the uh, sign of wealth and healthiness to skinny is better. And the basically the mentality change and what's considered attractive. Back then, there wasn't a lot of access to caloric foods. To be fat showed that you could afford these things that were out of reach of most people, and also you could afford to rest like you weren't out there doing manual labor all day. 
uh, as the food became more accessible and as more people were doing sedentary white-collar work and had access to cars and leisure, somebody who could resist those caloric foods, exercise and have a thin body was seen as more desirable. You can certainly see how it was a sign of wealth to be larger, but you could also see it's a sign of, uh, you could also think it was a sign of uh, greed and just unhealthiness to be like that in the first place. You can make a story out of out of anything. So, I mean, the white supremacy thing, I guess, comes into this probably more in her book, but in the article it says, what's the most surprising thing you learned in your research? It was super interesting reading the reflections of fitness enthusiasts in the early 20th century. They said we should get rid of corsets um, as they're an assault on the woman's form and they should be lifting weights and gaining strength. At first, you feel like this is so progressive. Then you keep reading and they're saying white women should start building up their strength because we need more white babies. They're writing during an incredible amount of immigration. Soon after, enslaved people have been emancipated. This is totally part of a white supremacy project. So that was a real holy crap moment as a historian, where deep archival research really reveals the contradictions of this moment. White supremacy. Anyway, we go all the way down to various periods over time here. The war and getting fit to basically have an army to go to war is implied all in here. Uh, she's really moved speaking to gay men who had lived through HIV AIDS and talked about how they exercised to display that they had a healthy body. Goes into running, becomes a popular among environmentalists who were imagining a culture that was not centred around cars. And then it's not equal for everybody to run because some people, they don't live in a safe neighbourhood and the environment they live in, it's, uh, it's a very different kind of experience. But to get to Richard Simmons, she's gone from Pilates, the guy who invented Pilates, Joseph Pilates, or Pilates, Joseph Pilates. He set the foundation for the idea that exercise isn't an indulgent little hobby some people have. It's actually something that that can keep you healthy. He came to the United States after being detained on the Isle of Man and created a resistance contraption out of hospital beds. And basically he made it more, more elegant more more graceful and then that flows in to mr richard simmons who um he's really important it says here in terms of shifting who was welcome in gyms one of the reasons that he ended up starting his own studio is that he went to this very famous studio gilda marx oh terrible name and he absolutely loved aerobics but he was asked not to come back because women didn't feel comfortable working out with a man who was singing and so emotive during his workout <laughs> i don't think men would be comfortable with that as well. Although, judging by these TikTok videos and all these dance videos by young men these days, I mean, I think the Richard Simmons effect is in full swing. Full swing. Anyway, started his own gym, and that's how we get from the white supremacists all the way to Richard Simmons. So if that book interests you, it's being released in January. Fit Nation, the gains and pains of America's exercise obsession. And I'm going to leave it right there for today hope you enjoyed another brilliant creative informative hilarious episode of the arriving somewhere with matt j podcast commentary comedy and conversation again remember do it to like share subscribe comment and any other good thing that you can think of and i'm going to talk to you again in the next one